Hi, I'm Evan Duncan, the senior pastor of the Baptist Church of Westchester in Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm so glad you found our podcast channel. On it, we share our weekly messages, and from time to time, you'll see some other things as well. If you want to learn more about our church or see how you can contact us, visit bcwc.org. This is a reading from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And I'll read verses 1 through 6. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Adimadab, Adimadab fathered Nashon, and Nashon fathered Salmon, and Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David the king. David fathered Solomon by by her who had been the wife of Uriah. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Are you still with me? (laughs) Sometimes we come across these lists in Scripture of so-and-so beget so-and-so and our eyes start to glaze over. I'll meet people who want to read the Scriptures for the first time so they begin in Genesis, beautiful poetry about creation, and they get to chapter 5, and it's all just name after name after name after name, and they say, I think I'll go back to my novel. I think we read this beginning of Matthew's Gospel, and we're kind of like, why start like this? It reminds me of when I was a kid. This often happened at holiday times, maybe around Thanksgiving or Christmas, my grandfather would decide to get out the slides. Have any of you ever experienced someone getting out the slides? He would have a projector back in this day with an actual light bulb in it, and then this wheel of images. You weren't sure what they would be, and he'd click through them. Some of them interesting, most of them not. (laughs) But as we see this genealogy of Jesus... Genealogies are important in the ancient world. They they would use them to help you grasp the character of a central figure, usually a hero or a king, to ground them in history and help you to understand about who they are and who they would become because of the story that they came out of. But Matthew's genealogy here of Jesus is different than we might expect. In fact, it's a little bit strange. You see, at this time, genealogies almost never included any women, and yet, Matthew does. In just the six verses that we read, we find these four women named. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth. She had been the wife of Uriah, that's Bathsheba. A fifth will be named at the end, Mary. This is peculiar. Not something we would expect. Matthew wants us to see something about Jesus' family history and specifically these names that have been included. There are reasons that this is here in our scripture. And so for the Advent season, we're going to look at each one of these characters ending on Christmas Day looking at Mary. 
Trisha Robinson, the painter, uh, has painted a beautiful image of the four women that show up in these six verses. I love this image. She's given each one of them a crown. Each one a part of the line that would produce King Jesus, the Messiah. Why are they here? But one uh, professor and theologian says the women in this genealogy represent the gender equality that had been denied them within much of their ancient culture. From the beginning, Jesus came to restore the personal equality and dignity of men and women of all people. Rabbi Julian Neuberger says women's story is there, written large, though it may be hidden in the text, and finding it may be like digging for gold. So we're going to dig for gold together. Says Matthew wants us to, to see these women, to remember their stories, to understand that they and all their uniqueness tell us something about the Jesus we celebrate at Christmas time as we anticipate Advent. So we'll be asking, what did the inclusion of these women in Jesus' family tree tell us? How does it speak about the new things that God is doing? maybe hints at things that have already sprung up in the past. And so today we're going to ask that question with the first woman. What does the inclusion of Tamar tell us about Jesus and his good news? Now this is a story that is not often preached. It is a difficult story. We often skip over it, but we're going to look at it today. So to turn to this story, uh, you'll find it in Genesis chapter 38. If you want to turn there, if you have a Bible, it'll be on the screens as well. Genesis 38 is an interesting chapter, often thought of by readers as a kind of interruption in the story. See, right before this, we have the story of Joseph, you know, with the technicolor dream coat and all the celebrations. He is sold into slavery by his brothers. They tell his father, oh, he must have been killed. We see this betrayal. And before we get to the next part of the story... Joseph, serving with Potiphar, we get Genesis chapter 38. This kind of aside about one of his brothers, one of the brothers that was there, sold him into slavery. It's the brother Judah. And as we begin to learn about Judah, Judah will be one who is hugely influential in the people of God. He'll be the namesake for the southern part of Israel, a key figure in the history. But this chapter, it is dramatic. It has all the betrayal and scandal of, well, what really feels more appropriate for like an HBO show, like Game of Thrones or something. But this is not an interruption. Tamar has much to teach us about, about power and justice. And what it means to be right, even when things are murky. So we're going to start in verse 11. But before we get to verse 11, let me sum up what happens in verses 1 through 10. You can read the whole story at home. Content warning. (laughs) It's PG-13 at least. (laughs) Like much of the Old Testament. Judah leaves home. He, He leaves his hometown and he marries his wife. They have three sons. He finds a wife for his oldest son, The oldest son would be the one expected to carry on the family line in this time. And this son marries a woman named Tamar. Tamar, like Judah's wife, is an outsider. But the oldest son is trouble. He dies and they have no children. 
And here's what we need to learn a little bit about marriage in the ancient world. This sort of thing shows up all throughout the Old Testament, and it doesn't originate in the Old Testament. This is how communities in the ancient world all operated with the same kind of practice. See, women in this culture, in this time, in this place had no authority or influence or financial security or independence. Their future, their well-being, unfortunately, was dependent upon being connected to a man. So when a woman was married, she was no longer connected to her father, but now to her husband. And if something was to happen to her husband, the estate would pass on to the son, and the son would care for her. But what happens if the husband dies and there is no son? I'm so glad that you asked. (laughs) It happens that custom demanded that the next oldest brother would then take her in and together they would have a son. I know it's kind of icky, but again, this was about making sure that the woman would be okay, of caring for the community. And then the son between the widow and the brother would be considered the son of the brother who died. And this son would preserve the line and be able to provide and care for the woman and give economic security So it's weird, but the goal was to care for the widow in the community and her future. That was why this practice happened in the ancient world. So when Tamar's husbands die, Judah's next son, Onan, is supposed to provide her with a son for security and a future. But Onan does not. He knows that if his brother doesn't have an heir, then he will get more inheritance. It's much better to split it up two ways than three. And so while he is happy to take Tamar as a wife, he's happy to spend the night with her, but he ensures that she will not get pregnant. He uses and abuses her. No one could have known about this treachery but Tamar, but but God sees, and Onan dies too. Got it? Okay. I told you, it's like HBO. Tamar has had two husbands. Both of them have been bad news. Both of them are dead. She has no heir. Takes us to verse 11. Then Judah said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Remain a widow in your father's house until my youngest son, Shelah, grows up. For he thought, I am afraid that he too may die like his brothers. So Tamar went and lived in her father's house. So Tamar returns home, which at this time would have been considered shameful to return to your father's house as a married uh, widow. Uh, But even then, even though she has returned home, the custom said that she still was connected to Judah's family, that it was up to Judah and Judah's family to to provide for her, and she was ineligible to remarry. In those days, women had no legal recourse. So Tamar is faced with a serious choice. She can hope that Judah changes his mind and cares about her. Or she can get creative. (laughs) See, the first thing we learn about Tamar, who shows up in Jesus' genealogy, is that she is a victim and at the mercy of a powerful man. What does this tell us? It tells us, I think, that Jesus' family's tree looks a lot like our world. Jesus' family tree might look a little bit like yours, looks a little bit like mine. There are people there from the outside. Tamar was not part of Judah's tribe. 
an outsider, outside the norms, outside of what you would expect, people who have been hurt and harmed. This Jesus that we are anticipating is coming not just for those who have it together, not just for those with power, but for everyone. We cannot look at Jesus and not know that he is embedded in a history of people, people with challenges and mistakes and problems with pain. But see how it shapes his story, our story. Jesus sees your story too. He's not afraid of it. Doesn't write you off because of it. Sees you in it. Loves you in it. Verse 12. Now, after a considerable time, Shua's daughter, that is the wife of Judah, died. And when the time of his mourning had ended, Juna went up with his sheep sharers at Timnah, he and his friend Hurrah, the Adulamite. So Judah's wife dies, he goes to shear the sheep. And in this culture, the time of sheep shearing was often filled with celebration and lots of drink and partying. And this is where we get to verse 13. Tamar was told, Behold, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she removed her widow's garment, covered herself with a veil, wrapped herself, and sat in the gateway of Anaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah, the son, had grown up, and she had not been given to him as a wife. Remember, the text says, after a considerable time. When Judah saw her, he assumed she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face, So he turned aside to her by the road and said, Here, let me have relations with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. And she said, What will you give me so that you may have relations with me? And he said, Therefore, I'll send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, Will you give me a pledge until you send it? He said, What pledge shall I give you? She said, Your seal and your cord and your staff that's in your hand. So he gave them to her, had relations with her, and she conceived by him. She got up and departed, removed her veil, and put it back on her widow's garment. What a story. (laughs) Judah assumed Tamar must be a prostitute, has no concern uh, propositioning her. She says, give me a promise that you'll actually pay me the goat. So she asks for the three most identifying things he has. (laughs) It's basically like she said, I need your driver's license, your credit card, and your car keys, And he says, sounds good. She becomes pregnant. Tamar has acted here because she has no future, no way to continue, no way to to, to bring forth the family line. And I'll remind you, God said that that God would bless all people through this family. Judah, unknowing who she is, provides her a future and a future for the family. That would bring King David and then Jesus. Look at verse 20. So when Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, you can tell what kind of person this is that he would send his friend to do this, to receive back the pledge, the staff, the cord, the seal from her, he didn't find her. He asked the people of the place, saying, where is the temple prostitute who was by the road at Enyam? And and they said, there has been no temple prostitute here. So he returned to Judah and said, I didn't find her. And furthermore, the people of the place said, there's been no temple prostitute here. And Judah said, let her keep them. Otherwise, we will become a laughing stock. After all, 
I sent this young goat, but you did not find her. Judah doesn't want to draw attention to his actions. They give up the search. And he begins to do damage control. Whatever he can to protect his reputation. Again, we learn a lot about Judah here. He wants to keep his good family name upheld, preserve what he can, keep everything quiet. Doesn't that sound familiar? (laughs) Those who have found themselves in a secure place with a good name, with power, become anxious not to do what is right, but to maintain their status. I could give you illustrations of this, but there are so many. (laughs) You know the stories. Avoiding the right thing for the least disruptive thing. Well, the story's not over. Verse 24. It was about three months later that Judah was informed, your daughter-in-law Tamar has prostituted herself, and behold, she's also pregnant by prostitution. So Judah said, bring her out and have her burned. I know. And it was while she was being brought out that she sent word to her father-in-law saying, I'm pregnant by the man to whom these things belong. (laughs) Right? It's good. And she said, please examine and see whose signet ring and cords and staff are these. And Judah recognized them. And Judah said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not have relations with her again. So Judah finds out Tamar is pregnant. And remember, she's supposed to be a widow, but still connected to his family. So she's supposed to be chaste. Even though he's completely ignored her and left her with no resources, no future, he becomes enraged. He demands the harshest penalty imaginable. Burn her because he feels she's disgraced the family name. And while she's being brought to be burned, she sends on the items that he pledged to her. She's got good timing. Here we have this sort of ancient paternity test. This is the father. More drama than a daytime talk show. And Judah sees he's the one at fault. Perhaps surprising, most surprising of all is Judah's reaction. When he's confronted by Tamar and his own guilt, I'm honestly surprised that he doesn't act out against her and just continue on with the plan. Let's just wipe her out. Let's just keep it quiet. But instead, in this surprising moment of growth and introspection, Judah says, Tamar is more righteous than I. I withheld a future from her, and her deception was her only option. And now, with her future secured, she's left alone, free from Judah with what will be her twin son. Judah understands that despite all that she's done, she's much more right than he. Theologian Walter Brueggemann says this about this text. The new norm seems echoed later by Jesus that that to everyone who much is given, much is required. And to him who men commit much, they'll demand more. See, because nothing is given to Tamar. But Judah has much. Sons, good, standing, but more is asked. He was supposed to care for this widow for the sake of the whole community, to care for each other. Judah commits the sin of looking after his private interests over the needs of the community. 
He is selfish. Tamar has committed the kind of sin good people prefer to condemn. Engaging in deception and illicit sexual activity and bringing damage to a good family. But Judah, Judah, however, has violated her right to well-being and dignity. And Judah discovered the reality that was declared so well by the great theologian Taylor Swift. It's me. I'm the problem. It's me. See, what is taken most seriously here is not the deception or this violation of norms, but it's this damage to a poor, diminished female and the disregard for her care and all those in the community. So what does Tamar show us? Why is Tamar in Jesus' genealogy? Because Tamar sheds light on a thing that Jesus will teach and get. Tamar sheds light on a better righteousness that is concerned with caring for others rather than how one looks to others. Jesus will again and again show us as he battles against the institutions of this established religious elite the same lesson Tamar teaches us in Genesis 38. Preserving an image or an institution is never more important than doing right things by those who are hurt and on the margins and cast aside. Tamar teaches us that God cares deeply about the poor, the left out. These things are more important to God than power or reputations. Jesus says in the key verse of his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness far surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Tamar is more righteous. Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the scribes or the Pharisees, how could our righteousness surpass religious leaders who were famous for meticulously keeping all the rules? Jesus wants us to understand that it was never just about rules, but about a quality of love and grace, that our righteousness is not something we achieve. Not something we have to maintain and keep the image up about. It is a gift from God, that when Christ comes at Advent, Christ brings his righteousness for us. This righteousness is something we always have, not something we have to grasp at, and so we may live boldly. We may love boldly with courage. Courage that, as the Reverend Dr. King says, is not the absence of fear, but the triumph over it. Tamar forces us to ask, do you live in a way that is motivated by love or by self-preservation? In your relationships, in your work, in how you serve, in who you talk with, in what you stand up for, but before we leave this story, I want to point out one more thing. Did you notice that Judah does, in fact, change? Not because Tamar waited around for him to change, but because of her courage. He acknowledges that the person that he has not cared for is indeed the one who has been righteous. And this may be an uncomfortable lesson for us, too. 
that Judah could be transformed. I mean, this guy was going to burn his daughter-in-law like if anybody should be on Santa's naughty list. This is the guy. But Tamar's bold action, her courage, her better righteousness lead Judah to his own self-reflection and transformation. It doesn't always happen this way, but it happens here. Jesus can use and transform the unexpected. In his memoir, Bono, the lead singer of U2, tells this story, and it's wild, how on one Sunday afternoon, Mikhail Gorbachev, the former leader of the USSR, shows up to his house for tea. Bono had been doing activism, right? And so he had made connections like this. And so Gorbachev shows up. That same weekend, they were also hosting their goddaughter, Anna. She's a a Belarusian girl who was born without legs because of her parents' exposure to radiation after the nuclear accident at Chernobyl. She was put in an orphanage, and uh, an Irish family adopted her out of that orphanage. And so Bono's family became their, her godparents. Now Gorbachev, the former leader of the USSR, who led this nation while Chernobyl was happening, didn't know the story of this girl as she walked into the room. And she didn't know who he was. But they told him in a story. And they asked him what it was like to lead the country in the midst of that. And Gorbachev said, I thought to myself, if the state cannot control a nuclear power plant of this significance, then the state is no longer functioning as a state. The state is kaput. And this would begin his work that would lead to the end of the Soviet Union. And Bono writes, so this had been a moment when Gorbachev changed his own history and ours. We discover history doesn't have to just shape us. The world is more malleable than we imagine. And things do not have to be the way they are. History is clay. Can be pummeled or punched or corralled or even caressed into a whole new shape. Is this not the story of Judah? Is this not the story of Advent? The world is more malleable than we imagine. And things do not have to stay the way that they are. Judah shows us transformation is possible. It's hard to swallow that God will still use Judah. But God does. I want you to hear me. Just because we can forgive and know that God can change people doesn't mean we we let those people who have done great abuse stay in their positions of power. By no means. You can forgive and restore without giving people that power again. Forgiveness means we acknowledge what happened. But change can happen. That God can do the impossible with Tamar, with Judah, with us. These days, I look forward to my grandpa's slides. (laughs) Partially because we've digitized many of them and we can get rid of the duplicates and the upside down and the ones that didn't turn out. But, But as he shows the pictures of his hiking adventures in the Rocky Mountains, I now know that that trip was a time of deep spiritual discovery and personal transformation. As he shows the pictures of family members, people who've gone before, I know how their stories shape my story. I know the things that I've inherited, good and not all, sometimes not so good. I see the history that has shaped me, but also I know that the future is more malleable than we imagine. 
And this is what we find in Jesus' genealogy too. I think it is only fitting to let me have some women have the final word here. So here, from the Professor Tikva, Simone, Friar, Kensi, and Pastor Gail Wallace from the Junia Project as they speak about Tamar. Tamar passes from the scene, but her impact continues. The, women who, the woman who transformed the history of the kingdom of Judah also transformed Judah himself. The rest of Genesis shows him back with Jacob's family. He betrayed Joseph out of jealousy, but, but henceforth will act out of loyalty to his family. He's even willing to stand up to the Egyptians to ensure their safety. After a dangerous detour, the actions of Tamar ensure that the house of Judah aligns once more with God's purposes. And as the prophet Zechariah says, from Judah will come the cornerstone. Tamar's tenacity and commitment to have a future for herself and her family points to God's great desires and purposes too. At Christmas, we celebrate that Christ has come because our God would stop at nothing to secure a hope and a future for you. May we be as committed to justice and the purpose of God as Tamar. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Baptist Church of Westchester podcast. If you have questions, want to connect, or are looking for ways that you can support God's work at this church, visit bcwc.org. And as you go, through whatever your day may throw at you, I want to share this blessing with you. May the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you in the wilderness, protect you in the storms. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our doors. Go and be the church.